market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that wishes it was as cool as Bitcoin and Tesla. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the doctor is in the house, the good doctor, Dr. Ian Mahanti. How are you, buddy? Good day, Captain. I'm good. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, thank you, mate. It's always it's always lovely to talk to you and always lovely to talk with our listeners or at least talk for our listeners. We do get a bit of interaction with our socials and we'll talk about that later. Thank you for the tangent. But, mate, we've got a... <laughs> I said every week. We've got a full podcast. We've got a lot of corporate news. We are early on in earnings season, mate. And while I haven't met a whole host of big names, there's been a few. Of course, there's been a drama at Crown. How can we not talk about that? I mentioned Bitcoin and Tesla and, man, that's a heck of a story. We've got... Plenty on, including we'll dip into the full mailbag. And if we have time, Doc, I might even do a little bit of a mini, mini, mini high horse. A short horse, a, a medium-sized horse, a Shetland pony, if you will. What do you reckon? Should we get on with it? Yeah, I bet that you are doing the high horse. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, let's let's kick off with, I guess, the, I'm not trying to work out what is the biggest news of the week. Actually, I was going to say the big news of the week. It's certainly been the story that had more column inches devoted to it this week than anything else. And by column inches, I kind of mean column feet, column miles. Um, I think there's been about four or five stories a day about Crown Resorts and the decision of the New South Wales gaming regulator to effectively decide that Crown is not fit to hold a gaming license. That's not, <laughs> I was going to say, it's, not, no, it's no small thing. It sounds obvious, right? Of course, it's no small thing, but it's kind of a big deal in a million different ways. That I don't know how to really get into this story. This was James Packer's kind of, again, I don't want to say plaything, but it was his company. It was his business, uh, obviously majority shareholder, had three nominees on the board. They had to give evidence to this particular gaming regulator in New South Wales. Packer did, uh, Helen Kuhn and Andrew Demetrio, a plethora of people. And yet they couldn't convince the liquor and gaming regulator that they were a fit and proper company to hold a gambling license. Mate, let me, let me, I, I'll, I guess I'll just have you ask your general thoughts and I might ask you a couple of questions, but how, where does that, where does that leave you? Where does it leave the, the market crown, the regulator? How do you kind of see this story? You, you know, <laughs> funny thing is, Given this is a gambling company, uh, given this is a sort of old school type of gambling, I've actually paid very little attention <laughs> to what's going on with Crown, um, uh, with the theory that a lot of these things um, that have you know regulatory issues, um, mm-hmm. uh, effectively it becomes you know Crown becomes a turnaround. I mean, right, is it worth it? it from an investing point of view? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's a fascinating story that they can't get a license and mm. that whole building was built on the premise that they couldn't have yeah, a license. Although, exactly. uh, although what I'll say is that I've heard uh, really good things about um, comedy. There's, there's short stay and long stay accommodation there. There's also apparently apartments that you can buy there. So it's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic building. Uh, and uh, apparently, I haven't seen it, and I haven't, I'm actually just looking at a picture. It looks fantastic. Adds mm. to the Sydney skyline. So I mean, I don't know. Um, it, it adds something. They don't get the license, which means they can't make money off it, right. which uh, is a small problem. I mean, to some degree, the whole development, was, as you say, yes, there are hotel rooms and yes, there are apartments, but they were in theory expecting most of them to be taken up by people who were gambling at the establishment. They're no longer able to do that. I don't know how many gamblers you're going to have come to Sydney and stay at Crown to then have to get in a taxi or a water taxi or something else and go across the harbour to the Star and gamble there instead. Maybe some, I suppose. But as you say, this was designed exactly for that purpose. Mate, one thing I, I was, I suppose... You know, the question it raises, a million questions, of course. Um, it seems like James Packer is going to have to sell out of Crown or at least choose to sell out. Um, the regulator was scathing about his evidence. It was regular, regular was scathing about the evidence given by other people of the business. The culture of that company apparently is all wrong. Um, it, it kind of, it feels like nothing other than a, a, you know, a firm broom right through the place would actually make the regulator happy. So there's that. I've got to say, though, remember, of course, Crown has gaming licenses in Queensland and Victoria and Western Australia. And it's got to beg the question, how is it that two different or four different regulators, I suppose, but three on one side, one on the other, you, I, I'm left kind of wondering, you know, what does this mean for the rest of Crown's licenses? How, how, how does the Victorian or the, or the Perth or the Western Australian regulator look at the New South Wales decision and go, yeah, no, we're, we're okay here. You know, in theory, you should expect the same broad you know, investigations and judgments on probity, on ability, on culture, on whatever else. Uh, that you know I mean the thing is that the regulator here isn't even investigating the Sydney casino because it doesn't exist they're investigating the company that has operations elsewhere surely 
shareholders and regulators elsewhere have to be thinking, man, if New South Wales has found some problems, what did we miss? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right uh, because, um, as you said, there's no operation here. The operation is elsewhere, and this is a this is a more of a um, an indictment sort of of the company mm. and not of the operations in New South Wales. So, you know, there might be more dominoes that uh, effectively you know has a domino effect. Um, yeah. Again, hard. I mean, hard to know. I mean, what the Here's the thing, right? I mean, this thing is trading at still double of its 52-week lows. It's actually yeah, so. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess um, at some, yeah. I mean, just to some degree, there is some sense that there's an expectation that Packer will sell out. There's an expectation that, as you rightly say, maybe this is the, the turnaround, right? I mean, it wasn't like most of the allegations weren't known already. Uh, the, yes. the Chinese junket trips that were bought up, um, you know, the regulator had a very dim view of Crown staff being arrested in China for doing things that broke Chinese law. Um, we know, of course, that there were allegations, and I don't know if the tribunal's findings make them proven or not, so we'll, we'll call them allegations, um, of money laundering through Crown's casinos. Um, I mean, this, is, this, this seems like a business where scant regard was paid, allegedly, <laughs> to the laws of the different jurisdictions that it operated in. And that seems to be that the fundamental challenge that the New South Wales regulator has was saying, well, hang on, if you guys aren't prepared to play by the rules there, how can we be confident you're going to play by the rules here? And they say, it kind of seems reasonable. They kind of should, right? Like that's, that should be the starting point. You are a business that is heavily regulated in a whole lot of different ways, um, including your requirements around money laundering, including the requirements around the ability to, to maintain payout ratios and, and make sure the odds are appropriate on certain games, all that kind of stuff. Um, you kind of need the high standards of probity. This is a big come down for James Packer. Um, you know, I'm old enough and have been around in, in Australia for long enough, but Kerry Packer was the name in business. You know, when Kerry picked up the phone, um, yes, Mr. Packer was the only answer that you would you would give. Now, I never got a call from Kerry, thankfully. I was a little bit too young at the time and hopefully even now I wouldn't have got a call from him. But there is, I mean, you know, he, he was, you know, the, the businessman. He was the guy that everyone talked about that everyone feared, that everyone, you know, wanted to either do business with or avoid doing business with, depending on what side of the transaction you were on. But, um, you know, so Frank Packer originally, then Kerry, then James, there is that hackneyed phrase of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. I, I, you know, James Packer's got enough grief in his own personal life, including, by the way, apparently some mental health issues, which are no laughing matter at all. But, um, man, I mean, he, you know, he's had a tough... He's had a tough run. Whether he bought it on himself, whether he was a bit too cavalier, I guess we'll never know for sure. But it's a, you know, for the Packer family, as you know, given their wealth, their name, their reputation, um, pretty surprising. I, I, I dare say this wouldn't have happened to Kerry, but maybe that's uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm assuming too much. Yeah, again, I, I don't know. As I said, I don't know the background enough of this company to um, say something meaningful. Mm, yeah. Like, you know, maybe it's a sign of changing times right i mean yeah. there was a time when this sort of brick and mortar business with um, <laughs> um yeah. you know um mm. was was really the type of business that people invested in and yeah. you know maybe now is not the not the time for this mm. sort of business right so yeah i mean yeah so i i really don't know uh and and that's perhaps the the issue here is the type of business, difficulty mm. of doing business in this sort of environment, um, the difficulty of maintaining profits in, uh, I mean, as, as you said, heavily regulated. It's like almost like banking, right? I mean, you're making yeah, sort of right, money on the exactly. cents on the dollar, right? So yeah, yeah. It's, a t- it's a tough business to be in, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't know, that's, that's my thought. On the flip but, side, mate, the house always wins. I mean, uh, you know, like I, I completely agree with you. On the other hand, and again, the price you pay matters. It's never going to be a hyper-growth business, as you rightly point out. But but kind of when you've got literally regulated win rates, <laughs> you know, all you got to do is make sure enough people come in the front door. Um, and maybe that's the challenge, right? I guess maybe there's more entertainment here, maybe more options, more comp- competition, you know, domestically, internationally. Um, but at some level, you kind of do the maths. You go, okay, we're going to play this many games of that particular, you know, roulette slash blackjack slash craps slash whatever. That we know the win rates on those. As long as you keep people coming in the door, as long as we get more of them the last year, this you know it's, it shouldn't be an overly challenging business to run in theory. Of course, as we know, theory and practice don't always match up, and Crown seems to have been caught somewhere in between. Remains to be seen whether or not they can uh, they can make their way out of it. I'm also mindful. You talk about new businesses, mate, and, and, and regulation. And it's probably I, I, I wonder I wonder how the regulators view these businesses because they're older now than they were. Um, you know, we, this might be a long bow, but we've seen them kind of give Uber and Airbnb and others a pass because, well, you know, they're new and they're innovative and they're doing some some interesting things. 
uh, even um, you know some peer-to-peer lenders and other things. In, speaking of banking regulation, um, Afterpay even early on, you know the 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 if the established players had done some of these things, I wonder whether they would have actually been able to get away with them. Uh, you know, if Crown was a, was an upcoming new digital gaming business, would it have the same would it have the same focuses as the Crown that we know? Given that it's established and more is expected of it, I don't know if there's anything there, or I'm just drawing a long bow. But it, it, as you mentioned, that kind of you know the established versus the versus the new and innovative it does it does make me think the the older businesses seem to have a I would say tougher time I don't necessarily feel sorry for them because they have to they're supposed to adhere to the regulations but they seem to come under more focus more scrutiny perhaps than others might yeah I mean there might be something there like I mean event, eventually sort of the old gives way to the new right I mean that's right, sort right. of what happens um, I, I mean here's the thing right I mean internationally too this sort of business like you know running a resort uh, you know a casino mm, uh, with mm. gaming offering I mean um, these are hard, really tough businesses, right? I mean, if you think yeah. about something like an MGM, uh, you know, MGM resorts and, yeah, yeah. you know, and I mean, have have they really, um, you know, grown? <laughs> I mean, their, mm. you know, revenues over time substantially and their profits over time. So it's, it's a hard, it's a hard business uh, yeah. to no, be involved fair. in. And, uh, you, you know, like MGM, for example, right, had nine, nine and a half, $10 billion of revenue in 2014, it had sort of $10 billion of revenue in 2017, you know, and it's going to have $6 billion of revenue now this year, <laughs> six, seven billion because of, you know, COVID. It's just, mm. these are difficult businesses to run. And yeah, so I don't know. I mean, right. and then if you have other issues, then mm. makes it harder. I am really quick on this, so we'll move on. But I am reminded of you talk about regulation, new businesses and stuff. There was a time when people were calling for regulation of Walmart because it was killing everybody else, uh, and that feels very quaint these days, as you say, because life's moved on. And Amazon's now the one people are turning their attention to. It'll be someone else in in, in five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, whatever it is. But yeah, gone, gone are the days when Walmart was the big risk for the, uh, for the for the average shopper, right? Or sorry, the average shopper, the average retail outlet that was trying to compete. Um, things have moved on really, really fast. Mate, let's um let's move on. Speaking of which, let's stick in Australia for a minute. I am going to get back to Tesla and Bitcoin, but rather than chop all over the place, let's stay with Australia and Australian corporate news. Commonwealth Bank. Um, this was a there was something for everyone in these results, mate. And I think I, I think I have a view of what your uh, or a sense of what your view might be. But let's uh, let's let's keep our listeners on the center hooks for a second. Um, Profit down 21%, pretty ordinary. Cash profit, their preferred measure of profitability. I'm always a little bit skeptical, by the way, when someone gives you their preferred measure. It's like, we want you to look at this instead. So, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't end up getting distracted by that. But as long as they report it in the good times and the bad, I suppose, there's some justification for it. Um, cash profit was down 11%. The dividend, though, was hiked from $0.98 cents to $1.50. That's the financial. So, you know, a bit of good, bit of bad. And as always, as we say every year, earnings season is about expectations as much as year on year. So the shares fell slightly yesterday. Last time I looked, I might have, not sure how they closed actually, to be fair. Um, but, that, you know, they were, they were a bit all over the place. But that, that was kind of not, a, not the world's, you know, worst result for the company. I did notice, though, in the commentary, some stuff, and, and maybe I'll, I'll make this broad, then we can narrow it back down again. But there were comments around the number of loans that, or the number of, bad loans or deferred loans that had come down phenomenally. And the numbers were were massive, mate. I haven't got them to hand. Here we go. I've got them here, actually. Um, so the CBA had said, as I pull this up, oh, man, the internet's killing me here. It's good radio, isn't it? I love this. All right, here we go. The number. This is the AFR report. The number and value of frozen home loans has plummeted more than 80% from the mid-year peak in 2020 to just 25,000 loans now worth 9 billion that's a billion that's a lot from 145 with 51 billion in June 30 frozen small business loans fell to just 2000 loans worth 300 million down from 67000 loans worth 15.7 billion over the same period so i guess you know sum this up things were bad they're not as bad as they were but they're still ordinary combank are still allowing for that so that's behind a lot of the write downs and provisions they've taken they managed to put the dividend up because, frankly, things weren't as bad as they thought and APRA's rules to make them, you know, kind of pull in their horns for six months has left them with a heap of cash <laughs> that they, frankly, didn't need. They might have needed, by the way, in a different universe, in different set of circumstances. All of that wrapped up, mate. What do you make of Comex result? I know you don't love the bank, uh, but what, 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 what good and what bad can you find there and how do you, how do you feel about it after the results? 
Yeah, so I have some after-the-fact thoughts, you know, and I'm making some of this up as, as you know, because again, I didn't pay too much attention to comments. <laughs> um, our, our listeners will be will be flabbergasted by that. I know you're a yeah, bank it's, uh, it's a it's completely relevant to how I invest. You know, ComBank can stay, go, die. It doesn't make any difference to me. So, uh, I mean, I mean that jokingly. I think it makes some difference. Yeah, I, uh, I actually have a bank account with with ComBank. <laughs> so, if it dies, so if, it, so if it dies, it doesn't have a problem for me. But, you just realized you, know, you care uh, a little bit more than you thought you did, don't you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> Listen, I, have a, I have an account uh, with them. So yeah, uh, let's put that aside. Um, so here's, I think, what's going on. Um, I still think we are, what we are seeing is, I think, what we've seen saw in the past was sort of the fake economy. Mm. What we are seeing right now is the fake economy. Uh, mm. In other words, we don't have truth of any version or any sort of version. And and I think this is what, ha- what has happened, right? Or this is one interpretation of what has happened. The sort mm. of the pandemic hit, people panicked. And given the carte blanche sort of approach, well, you know, you can ask for deferral for six months, eight months. A lot of people took the deferral options, which basically yeah. resulted in people saving money, which yeah. then, you know, and then you have, of course, got JobKeeper, you know, cash flow boosts and things like that. So, you know, the, the policy intervention was swift and fast yeah. and of rapid of, Bloody huge. Of, of huge proportions right you know you know yeah. a couple hundred billion dollars into an economy of like 1.6 trillion is is a lot of money mm-hmm. inserted mm-hmm. uh which would otherwise not exist right so it's basically mm-hmm. you know quantitative easing and so that has resulted i think and what happened is well now I'm not paying my mortgage and I've got extra cash and I've all you know and if I'm a small business I've got cash flow boost and if, if I've you know I've potentially got job keeper again uh, nothing you know exactly that was the intended purpose of the of of the right right yeah uh, of the stimulus right now maybe people could you know and remember People, uh, corporations start paying rents to mm. um, uh, to malls and mall owners mm. and things like that, uh, or other landlords because again they could legally without being kicked off. Right. So a lot of cash savings, and in retrospect, none of these businesses were probably as badly affected as one would have thought they would be. Right. Sure. So. That in turn has meant there's a surplus cash which has gone to retail, which has, you know, created a booming housing market. Effectively, the only thing that has changed is we basically got surplus cash in uh, circulating in the economy. Nothing has fundamentally changed to the economy. The economy is not all of a sudden awesomely great or anything. It's the same same economy from, you know, a year back, right? Uh, chugging along, which has the same issues and the good things and the bad things that it has. So I think that's the, and, and therefore it doesn't now surprise me to see that the numbers have fallen because, hey, they've said you've got to start paying and a lot of these people who, didn't pay, have the capacity to pay, so therefore they're paying, right? So it's reflective that, another way to think about this would be that the pandemic's worst uh, affected people probably are not uh, lenders or, or, or not borrowers, right? Maybe they're, you know, they are people who are um, renting, they're people who, you know, uh, with the support have been able to actually pay uh, or mm. they have now started paying the uh, mortgages or, or not mortgages but the rent which is then effectively allowing people to pay mortgages so in mm. some sense this has so the stimulus has done exactly what it was supposed to do and it doesn't surprise me um, what does it mean for the bank well that you know Commonwealth Bank is trading at twice the, its book value that's pretty expensive yeah. by global standards <laughs> um, yeah. Wells Fargo Bank in the US trades at point eight of book value mm-hmm. um, usually people would say you you buy a bank shares around maybe one 1.2 and you sell around two uh, yeah. so that's that um, going forward I think you know the banks are extremely poor quality investments return wise uh, that wouldn't stop anyone from buying them because people don't don't look at returns people look at you know how much franking credits and dividends i can get so <laughs> exactly. um I, I think again looking at the wrong metric wrong incentives is sort of the, yeah so that's what i think I, I i don't think the banks are investable uh i think they're expensive but you know the bank results basically are telling us uh exactly what i would expect them to tell us or at least this is what i think they're telling us but that's my story
No, I like it. Man. I, think, I think that's actually spot on. I think that actually that your last point in particular is a really perfect summation of what you said, which is the, the bankers are telling us exactly where we're at, to, to my mind, and, and exactly as you say, uh, they are reflective of what has happened in the economy. To some degree, they're a lagging indicator, and it's worth also thinking about those numbers because they were December 31 numbers. Um, and of course, you know, as, as things move on, um, there will be a small group of people, by the way, who still are hurt by this. And we know that job keepers coming off in March. So as Matt Common was careful to point out, you know what I liked about Matt Common's thing, Matt? This is from an economic perspective rather than a company perspective. He sounded like an old-fashioned banker for a change, which is kind of nice. You know, for, for, the, for the longest time, bankers were, you know, and, and let's lose the stereotype, it was a bloke, so let's just stick with that, was the guy, you know, everyone knew, he went to everyone's house for dinner, he made the loans because he knew you or trusted you or knew what you did and how you did it. Um, and that's a bit, that's a bit rose-coloured glasses, but, but you know, it was, it was boring, it was, reg- it was regular and normal. There weren't big risks being taken. They extended, they extended credit to good risks, they didn't extend to bad risks. Um, banking was really boring. And then for 20 or 30 years, it got super exciting, <laughs> exciting in air quotes, because it led to the things like the, um, uh, the GFC and the credit squeeze in the US. Um, but his comments were kind of like, well, we don't know. We're being overly conservative. We're making sure we've got enough provisions. We're not sure how the economy is going to come out of this. And I just thought for a change, and maybe it won't last once we get through this recession and, and back to normal times. Uh, but he actually sounded like an old-fashioned banker, which for me at least was a, a positive um, and the way banks should be run. And frankly, they shouldn't be exciting investments, as you, as you rightly point out. They should be pretty boring. Um, they, are, they are too big to fail in the, in the parlance these days. And so uh, I'm all for, all for boring banks. Man, let's stick with boring because I know you'll you'll also you'll you'll love this story because I know you can't wait to get your teeth into the Telstra results. Uh, it was out this morning just before we started recording, so fair to say we haven't spent a lot of time on it. Um, but profits went down about two point two percent, which is about what Telstra's been doing recently. Just these couple of percentage points either way. It is about the most boring set of financial results you can read over the last whatever I want to say four or five years, mate. Um, this this is kind of ticking along, roughly kind of you know treading water. Uh, by the way, doing a lot of work to tread water. Like it's, it's a lot going on. If you're the CEO, you probably think, man, I spent a year doing this and we got roughly where we started. That, that's got to be pretty disappointing, I reckon, if you're the CEO. The dividend was, was held, speaking of fully frank dividends, as you mentioned earlier, that's why I knew you'd be excited about this one. The dividend was held. Um, I'm not sure there's anything more sacrosanct in Australian corporate life than, than Telstra's dividend. And so plenty of people this morning waking up and, and uh, happy they're going to get paid out. Fair, fair to say, by the way, a lot of self-funded retirees had a tough 2022, just on a quick aside, because of those dividends being cut. So they'll be happy that uh, CBA is back and, and Telstra is maintaining its dividend. Um, I, I will, you know, the, the only thing I suppose that, that makes you want to look twice at Telstra is the fact that it actually is still paying a dividend. As you mentioned before you recorded, 5% fully frank, there's nothing to sneeze at. Now, I should say I own Telstra shares for full disclosure. Um, I own them because one of our services actually sold them. The other one's kept it. Uh, and so I have to keep the shares uh, under our trading rules. So I do own them. I don't expect they're going to beat the market, by the way. So if that sounds weird, that's exactly why. Um, we sold them out of our market beating or the service designed to beat the market. We kept it in a service that doesn't have that market beating expectation, but is focused on income. So just to get that out of the way quickly. Um, yeah, that, that 5% fully frank yield, Doc, even you were a bit, what, can I say impressed or just surprised? What, what, was your, what was your take on the Telstra dividend? Well, like, I mean, you know, it's a telco, right? So, I mean, it probably has 5%, if it can, as you said, I think what you said is spot on. Like, I mean, if, if they can re- maintain the 5% from those people looking for income, this is better than buying a bond, right? I mean, you can buy the Australian mm-hmm. bond um, and get oh, yeah, no, totally. no return. Um, (laughs) maybe you have to pay the government to actually take your money um, eventually (laughs) whereas in this case Telstra is giving you some the big 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 question the reason you get that is Mm. big question is you don't know whether you're going to get your whole dollars back eventually Um, so as you said you know you don't think this is market beating Mm. Um, so I I don't know. Like I mean, the main I guess the main question for someone like Telstra is how much of market share do they lose to all these, uh, you know, the new age um, Mm. broadband retailers that are offering basically all NBN. Everybody's offering NBN, and you know, can you offer um, better service somehow, make it easier for customers, and then they take share. If they take substantial share, then. Uh, you know, eventually their ability to pay dividends is going to decrease, but you know, it's still, mm. you know, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting that the dividend yields us 5%, but again, um, for, for the risk you're taking in which, which is basically that, that the capital can actually go down, 
that seems about right <laughs> in my mind. Like, I mean, why would you buy Telstra unless you can actually get five or six percent dividend, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's gonna be something there. <laughs> yeah, it has to be something, right? And and maybe when you yeah. know when you use the franking and everything, it's actually you know grossed up. It's more like seven percent. Actually, you're probably getting compensated for the risk mm. you're taking. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know it's probably okay for income investors. Um, you know, I wouldn't touch it, but. That's me. <laughs> we'll get to some stocks you would touch in a minute, mate. But yeah, look, I, I agree. It's a it's a fascinating one. Of course, you know, if the share price falls more than the dividend, then eventually it does actually harm your return. So we would always encourage listeners not just to buy the yield. Um, plenty of times high-yielding stocks have been an absolute disaster as investments because they've either gone broke or share price have fallen meaningfully. Um, if you're getting a 5% yield rather than 3%, but your share's half in value, um, that's 25 years you've got to wait to get the money back. So, it's, you know, in terms of the increment. So you've got to be a little bit careful. Don't just buy the yield as ever. But as Doc said, with a reasonably reliable business, mate, I'm still a little bit surprised uh, slash impressed with how the broadband resellers, the NBN resellers in particular, are managing to actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but managing to actually get brand and, and, and price differential when they're effectively retailing the same thing. I mean, we, you know, no-name products, private-label products have been in supermarkets for years and often they are the same thing. I certainly worked for a company in the past whose product was the exact same product as, as the Woolworths home brand uh, varied at the time, literally the same product, but sold for probably 20, 25% less. Um, if you buy NBN from anybody, you're getting exactly the same NBN. Now, yeah, there's maybe a bit of service difference. That counts for something, by the way. If you screw up, you want to know someone's going to help you. So there is that. But I'm, I'm actually, I said, surprised. Uh, part of me is appalled. Part of me is impressed that you actually can have NBN resellers with such broad ranges of prices and still manage to get plenty of business. You know, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, I mean, uh, I have a Telstra um, uh, service. Um, and, you know, to just set up something called give me electronic bills, I can't yeah. do it on my own. I actually have to get onto the phone to figure it out because, you know, it's something <laughs> yeah. or the other in their, you know, remarkable number of systems that they've got uh, mm. interconnected, it just fails, right? And I've got mm. the telephone number, I've got the account number, I've got the bill in front of me, and I just can't get them to, you know... <laughs> allow me to create a login so that I can actually get electronic bills so that they don't have to post it and print it for me. It's that, you know, it's just, so I think it's one of those things, right? I mean, if you started in the 19, God knows when, uh, and if you started as part of, I don't know, Postmasters General or whatever it was at that time, yeah, yeah, that's right. that's um, right. if you started at that time, your systems are clunky. You have basically got a yeah. patchwork of stuff right. that is no longer, and you know, and you, you know, it's, it reminds me of that, you know, of that submarine that needs duct tape to float, <laughs> right? And such submarines do not float, and therefore they're definitely not uh, fit to go to war, right? I mean, right, I mean, they're right, going to be able to defend nothing because the moment you put them well, in water, the they're just you, you devote half your staff to reapplying duct tape all the time rather than actually doing what they're supposed to be, which costs you time and money and makes you slow. And it's yeah. a fun analogy actually to play with, yeah. So it's it's basically that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the service is the service, but you just can't, I can't get the bill uh, electronically mm -hmm. because their billing system is just pathetic, um, and, and and then to find someone to actually help me out is even worse because you know you call someone or there's some automated chatbot that shows up and there is this like community board that tries to help you. You can get on Twitter and somebody try to help you, but actually it'll take you a long time. So I, I think that's. <laughs> I think that's, you know, I was just thinking, uh, the other day I was thinking, because given so many, um, you know, broadband retailers and some of them are really doing well, um, mm. uh, like, you know, there's this one, one, for example, like Aussie broadband, like, and I thought, how can you be profitable and how can yeah. you do well, yeah. right? And exactly. how can you take market share? And this is yes. it, right? You basically have an up-to-date system. You have a way of actually helping people. You, you know, mm -hmm. the, the magic is you want to make sure the customer doesn't have to contact you. You need to have the right systems. And if you've got the yeah. right system, the customer never is going to contact them. They're just going to be happy because the stuff works, right? Right, exactly. And, exactly. and, and so uh, these guys are yeah. new and they have basically spent yeah. the money uh, doing it yeah. and customers are happy. So I, I think, that's I think that's the nut of it. It's like you know, so actually you can be a reseller and still do uh, do well. Um, you know. Anyways, again, you know, I'm not amazing, saying that right? you know, I'm not saying go and buy Aussie uh, broadband, but I, I just think that you mm. know the fact that they've got like such high review ratings. 
That's amazing. Is something. It? People it love is, them. Yeah, it, yeah. People love is. them, right? Yep. So that is that is something to think about, you know, and yep. as an investment lesson, maybe, you know, if your customers love you, they're going to recommend you. <laughs> they're not going to leave right. you. Yes. And you're going to yes. spend less time servicing your customers, which is basically net-net mm. an advantage for you. So you have a little bit more wiggle room uh, to make money. So, mm. I mean, you know, yeah. Such an important component. Man, I'm going to, I want to speak of tangents. I'm going to do another one here because I, I – in my head, I have some some version. It's not a very sophisticated model, but but a, a model in my head of there's innovation and disruption is really really hard, right? Like to try and come up against Telstra and do well is stupidly difficult because Telstra is Telstra, and if you're if you're a new play, you've got to get scale, you've, you've got to overcome cash drain of the startup, you've got to get some sort of wide. Um, distribution or awareness, like they, this, is a really, really. If you and I started, you know, Doc Scott Tell tomorrow, we'd 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 really struggle, and maybe we'd be successful, maybe we wouldn't, but it's really, really hard. So disruption innovation is really tough. The incumbents have a a, a phenomenal um, ability to to keep you at bay, but and there's a graph here somewhere that as you get to a certain point, your disadvantage becomes a phenomenal advantage to exactly the reasons you've pointed out. You know, if you if you can keep the little guy at bay, and most this is this is why it's hard as an investor, by the way, is that most little guys don't make it. And so if you invest in all the little guys, you invest in every gold miner and every biotech and every tech hopeful, and you'd probably I'm pretty sure, Doc, you, I'm pretty sure we'd lose money, right? If we invested in all the new ones, I'm pretty sure we'd lose money overall. But if you can start to refine your your investment process and as a business, if you can start to kind of refine your own business, at there is some point in a business history and it's unknowable in, in absolute accuracy. You can probably get it rough a rough version. But once you break through that, as you say, when you don't have to deal with legacy issues, legacy costs, legacy cultures, um, legacy systems, quite literally in Telstra's case, but plenty of others as well. Once you kind of bust through that, then the world is kind of your oyster, right? Like, and I don't mean to make it sound super easy either because you've got to keep working hard and they're always still going to try and drag you down and there's plenty who've almost made it or who made it and then been dragged back into the mire. But there is some crossover where, where incumbency goes from being a massive, massive, massive benefit to an enormous drawback where it starts to actually hurt you as you try and compete with the new guys. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's, um, let, let's do our last bit of corporate. And this one, I'm not going to go into a whole heap of detail unless you feel like you want to. No, the unit I know AGL particularly well. But it had a phenomenally large write-down. I want to say it was multi-billion, maybe $2 billion write-down, I think, of its energy assets this week. And... Look, I have said for a long time, I'm not sure if you have a view or if you had a view in the past, I think energy generation retailing is a stupidly tough business and I've consistently avoided recommending any of those companies for our services. Um, I imagine they never cross your, your path anyway, but from, from a share advisor perspective where we look at medium and large businesses, um, these are you know the origins, the AGLs. I've been asked more than a dozen times, should we recommend them? Do we recommend them? Why don't we recommend them? And my view has always been it's just a stupidly tough, hyper-competitive business where you're selling and reselling a commodity with massive fixed costs, right? It's just a, it's a really, really tough business. I'm not, I'm not claiming any, any prescience, by the way, in terms of AGL's downgrades. I didn't certainly expect a, three, a $2 billion write down. So I'm not, I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying I don't know the business well because I've never bothered to look much past the, the broad industry dynamics because it's a really tough way to make money. What I thought was fascinating, Doc, is the, the write downs were in the generation business because of expected and current lower energy prices. Now, that's great news for those of us with energy bills, which is all of us. Um, so that's good. That's that's positive. But they also had to write down things like their wind farms and some of their renewable investments. And it just struck me, and I, I don't, I'm not I'm not a renewables expert. You know a bit more about it than I do because you're a Tesla shareholder and you kind of have spent more time looking at the, the details of renewable energy as a as a investment and probably with your with your own science background. Uh, I'm an interested observer, but, but claim no expertise. Just fascinating to me that Maybe maybe the hardest challenge for renewables in terms of new new investment is actually the fact that they're bringing down the cost of power, you know, the, the projects that are already in place, and so it actually makes it harder to get new products projects off the ground. And that's same for same for coal, of course, same for others. So it's not it's not, I'm not saying it tip, tilts the, the the playing field away from them, but you know, the wind farms that made sense at higher prices that AGL did at higher prices, they're now going to write down because they no longer make sense. There is something of a not exactly self fulfilling prophecy, but when it comes to new projects, the, the success of renewables ironically makes new renewable projects harder to get off the ground. Is that? I mean, just an observation as I looked at those results and saw those write downs. Does that make? Am I making any sense? Am I on the wrong track? Do you have any thoughts from a, a, a investing perspective, an economic perspective? Well, I think it's you know I think everything you said makes sense. The uh, the main thing for me is with, with typically with new technology, right? There's a there's a rapid cost. 
I guess, decline, you know, cost performance decline, right? right? right. I mean, uh, how much dollars do you need to spend to make you know, how many dollars of, you know, worth of profit, right? And, and yeah. that decline sort of happens rapid, rather rapidly as the technology uh, sort of starts to mature, right? And it's one of those things where if you're ahead of the maturity curve, because you want to do the right thing, yeah. you might actually make an investment decision that is not really uh, going to work out because, mm. you know, mm. like the wind generation technology maybe 10 years ago um, can no longer compete with the wind generation technology of today and maybe can no longer compete with solar generation mm. technology mm. today and maybe solar and batteries and things like that, right? So I think that, so it's a little bit of, you know, what, what did you back and why uh, that yeah. comes into play? And, and I mean, you know, the, it's all you know, everything is done with good faith so um it's probably a good decision then it's not a good decision now such as life but uh, it's something to be observant and careful about new technology mm. is um you know watch the maturity cycle i guess and you kind of you kind of need some sort of vision or maybe even the willingness to be wrong or simply to make less money or even make a loss to kind of make some of this stuff work right that that's almost part of the adoption curve um i know this is a really basic boring example right but we got some solar panels on our roof um, we got a quote and then we kind of sat on it for 12 months. We went back 12 months later and said, oh, mate, can you update the quote? We're ready to go. And it turned out that for whatever number of panels we wanted on the roof, we originally were quoted for 250 watt panels. We ended up getting 300 watt panels instead, so 20% more uh, power generation for the same size for a lower price even 12 months later. So you call that, you know, probably, a, I mean, it's 25% increase in, um, it, it, or, you know, 20% increase in, in capacity, um, probably something like 5 or 10% cheaper. So, you know, it's probably a, a 30% saving or, you know, net net ROI increase, depending on which way you want to do the maths, just just based on waiting, waiting 12 months. And look, it wouldn't have made it a bad idea to invest uh, in the solar panels 12 months earlier. We weren't waiting for any economic reason necessarily. It was just interesting that exactly as you point out, investing early, because it all makes sense. I think it's also worth pointing out, mate, and this is, I'm not going to go into this in detail because no one wants to talk about the boring part of accounting. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that the way that your auditors and accountants do this work is they assign a value to an asset based on its likely future cash flows. And if those likely future cash flows fall, i.e. if energy prices are going to be lower in future, then they're, they're kind of forced to take a write down to acknowledge that the, the cash generating unit, they call it in the jargon, uh, simply was going to produce less cash than it was previously, so it's therefore worth less, and so you've got to take a write down. And that's kind of, as you say, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's an opportunity in energy in particular, I still don't like the sector, um, but there is some value in being able to look through those numbers as long as you've understood the value of the assets and the, and the cash they're generating, um, because even even an asset with declining efficiency, as you say, mate, or one that's less efficient or less attractive relatively than it was in the past can still be profitable. Um, so I would encourage people to look through some of those accounting write-downs. Um, while we're here speaking, which I'm going to make, take a very quick tangent, tangent on tangent, how am I going? Um, one of our greatest investments at ShareAdvisor, I don't think, in fact, it was done before, no, it was done, might have been done just before my time at running ShareAdvisor, it was a long time ago, was a business called M2 Communications, telecommunications at the time. And it was funny, they, they were forced by accounting rules to write down the cost of their customer acquisitions over three years. And as if the customers would not be with them for more than three years. And yet the data showed very clearly the customers were hanging around. And so they were taking this accounting write down, which, which made them look like they were making much less profit. And you've talked about this before. It turned out if you looked at the cash flow rather than the accounting profit, you got a very, very different look at the business. And it was something like 16 times earnings, but about 12 times cash flows. And it's just one of those obvious times where you kind of look at it and go, okay, well, it's possible that the accounting numbers were right if the customer, if the customers were staying for less than three years. That's absolutely right. You should write down that cost. But when they weren't, M2 was actually making a whole lot of money that the accountants weren't letting them actually count as profit, um, which again, sounds a bit strange. I'm not, even, I'm not even necessarily against the accounting rules. They're supposed to be prudent. Um, but in that case, just a, a little bit of a look lower on the p and um, or not on the p and on the cash flow statement in this case, a little bit further through the annual report showed the real state of the business that was being masked in this case um, by an accounting rule that made the, the business look less profitable. And that's just a, look, most people probably don't want to do that level of research and that's fair enough. But that can be a really attractive way to try and find some ideas. And you've, you've you talked about cash plenty of times, mate. The cash more than accounting profit can be a, a better sign of the real health of a business. Yeah, the free the free cash flow is 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 a really a much better indicator. Just for all those reasons, it's, it, I'm not implying that companies. I'm not ever implying that companies are actually doing the wrong thing. The companies are probably doing the right thing in terms yeah. of accounting. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. The, the thing is, the accounting rules or like the standardized accounting rules, they're designed to work across industries, across companies, yeah. and so that. 
people can look at it and make sense. But the byproduct of that is stuff that, you know, how do you amortize things? How long do you amortize it over? Um, you know, when do you book the profit? Like, you know, when do you book the revenue? All of those things matter, right? Like you can have, totally. you know, and, and, and typically like, you know, for example, if you um, say are selling a software uh, as a service and you, you get all the money up front, Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge advantage, right? You've got yeah, exactly. all the money up front. Like, I mean, yeah. that money is not going to disappear. Even if your customer disappears, that money is in your pocket, <laughs> right? That's but right, you can't right. recognize it. Uh, revenue would show some sort of revenue recognition policy based on some mm-hmm. revenue recognition mm-hmm. policy, right? It would not show up. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, seeing sort of cash, uh, you know, what is the cash into the business is really, really useful. And, and I like to see that grow. Uh, that's probably you know the, the place where it, there is um, least fudging happening. Even there too, I think like you know the way people say you say cash from operations minus uh, capital investments, right? But even that is very tricky, right? Because not yeah. every capital investment is the same thing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. So you could invest in that's say really buying uh, computer hardware, which yeah. is you have to retire in three years, uh, yeah. or you could you know, capital invest in something that you have to retire in 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. How do you actually, you know, they're not the same thing. So again, if you, yeah, you subtract exactly. it out and you're just looking at free cash flow, well, uh, so it's, it's, yeah, sometimes you have to look under. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot, mate. Uh, and I think that's right. I think that's where, you know, people often say to us, and, you know, I, 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 I'm with them. I, I've been there. You know, what, what's the formula? How do, you, how do you pick great stocks? And, you know, we could, we could write a book and not scratch the surface, or we could do a two-page pamphlet and it'd feel great, but it's rare that the that that approach that simply using a formula, okay, if cash flow is X or free cash flow is Y or profit is X or you know whatever, um, you know that there are it is the combination and it is it's, it's unsatisfying as an answer, right? But there is no there is no easy answer. You gotta it, it's it's practice and it's heuristics and it's um, you, know, you used the phrase yesterday in a presentation we did for the Australian Shareholders Association pattern recognition and it's just being able to kind of apply that mental almost um, stencil over the top of something and say, does, does it seem to fit and where are the bits that are different? And then and then really be able to interrogate those differences to work out whether there's an opportunity or whether it's a, you know, something that looks good on the surface but maybe has some underlying flaws that don't make a whole lot of sense. Yep. Speaking of not making a whole lot of sense, mate, I want to talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> I've got to say, I, 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 it, the tech makes sense. I get it. Whether Bitcoin's worth $40,000, that's the bit I'm not so sure about. So this week... We saw Tesla, and I really, you know, I've got to say, you know, Tesla were really circumspect about this. It was buried on page, it was 160, I think, of their of their uh, uh, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission filing. Well, they just mentioned in passing they've got 1.5 billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Uh, they may accept Bitcoin in the plan to accept Bitcoin for new cars in the future, and they may or may not keep that Bitcoin as Bitcoin, or they may simply transfer it straight to cash and use it. They talk about using that Bitcoin for an investment opportunity and for diversification, if I'm not mistaken. Now I don't. I'm mean, happy if you want to talk about Tesla's ownership of Bitcoin. Feel free to do that. What What struck me most is just the the impact on Bitcoin itself. The fact that you know Elon Musk's imprimatur, whether it was deliberate or not, whether he meant uh, or wanted people to care or not that he's doing it, um, certainly meant a whole lot for Bitcoin. It was up, I think, eight nine percent, maybe at one point, maybe it ended up being higher when the news was first reported. Um, there, it's no small thing, mate. You know, Tesla is now one of the top S and P five hundred companies, one of the most valuable companies in the world. Musk is a certified, literally certified, he's effectively a certified genius. Um, the guy doesn't make too many mistakes. You, you don't do well betting against Elon over the long term. It's easy to look at that and go, well, if, if, if Elon's in it, I guess I probably should be into it too. On the flip side, there's still plenty of questions that are yet to be answered on, you know, the, is, is Bitcoin really a thing? Is, is it going to be a thing? And even if it is, how do we work out a value? I, I don't know if you have any answers about it. I'm not going to put you on the spot or any of that necessarily, those specific questions. Um, but just your thoughts on on Bitcoin's re-rise because it was, you know, flew high a couple of years ago, then then spent a couple of years in the doldrums, and everyone said it was over, and now it's back with a, with a vengeance. Um, your thoughts on on Bitcoin in the wake of of Tesla's move, and just generally, um, now everyone's talking about it, we have to too. Uh, where where do you see Bitcoin as an investment? Yeah, so I'm really not certain about Bitcoin as to what to make of it. That's my position has been my position for some time, uh, largely because it's. I don't know what it is serving, and I have some. I can I can speculate as to what 
it, there are many potential reasons why Tesla would do what it has done. Um, some other companies have also done the same thing. Um, so again, so okay, so we can backtrack and let's let's put it this way. Tesla spent what something like 1.5 or 1.4 US billion dollars in mm. buying Bitcoin. That's mm -hmm. a really small percentage of their 20 plus billion dollar of cash. So yeah, exactly. effectively, yeah. they're putting a very small, and if you compare that with the market cap, it's really, yeah. really tiny. So it's very basically a really tiny sized bet, right? Um, yes. uh, Tesla's competitors spend more than that just on uh, marketing. Right. So if, if you're if you so if you GM, you, you would be spending yeah, three billion dollars yeah. in marketing in US alone. <laughs> Tesla spends. You know, Tesla doesn't have yeah. actually a marketing line. Uh, doesn't yeah. mean that doesn't do marketing. But you know, you could sort of say that well, this one point five billion dollars effectively is marketing, and you know the amount of press that this generated is yeah, uh, <laughs> it's free marketing, right? Um, yeah. So that's that's you know you could take that view and say well so, you know it's a type of marketing and it's a different type of asset that sit, sits. It adds here's the other funny thing about Bitcoin. Bitcoin sits <laughs> in, you know if you if you read that page it will say that it basically sits sits as a digital kind of asset. It's not regarded yeah. as a security or of, of like yeah, cash, currency. right? That's right. It's not yeah, currency, yeah, yeah. Right. So effectively, it? and here's the funny thing with the rule: the price of Bitcoin goes up. It has no material impact on Tesla's uh, accounting earnings, okay? You actually cannot bump, your earnings do not go up unless you, you have realized the sale mm. and made again. However, if Bitcoin price caters in half, you actually have to write it down <laughs> and you have to take the loss. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly, good so, point. Um, yeah, good point. And in fact, if Tesla is gonna, in planning to buy yeah, more yeah. Uh, Bitcoin, there is no yeah. reason for them to be actually talking up Bitcoin because oh, it makes it, yeah, you know, point. because if they yes, talk up yes, Bitcoin, yes. price goes up, yep. they're spending more. And then if it goes mm -hmm. down, they basically have to trick it right down. <laughs> this is going to look bad in their earnings report. Now, of course, you know, <laughs> analysts might back it out and things like, okay, you know, that doesn't matter. We'll just, uh, we'll, we'll look at it at at market value and, and maybe they'll do it. Uh, but it, it, so there's this accounting uh, reason to it. I, I think... If I had to speculate, uh, a third reason why this is being done, I think it's really a, a small side bet. But the yeah. side bet, I think, is uh, is as follows. The total amount, I've read the statistics somewhere, the total number of US dollars injected into the global monetary system last year is something like 40% of the or 30% of the total amount of dollars circulating. Right. It's a phenomenal number, right? Yeah, now, yeah, what yeah. that, what that would do, and we've already seen some effect of that, right? So we are seeing that the, for example, the Australian dollar is now trading at a much higher price relative to the US dollar, maybe like a year back, right? So, yep, yep. so there may be some concern that um, the US dollar, basically because of money printing or quantitative easing, is becoming mm -hmm. less uh, valued relatively. So you're basically losing money value, and mm -hmm. the, one of the ways in which you can keep um, money value is we're basically buying a mm. scarce asset, right? So, the, yeah. and why is Bitcoin a scarce asset? Bitcoin is a scarce asset because yeah. there are only finite number of Bitcoins out there, and uh, so that's that's you know that's basically a. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I call it, it to, in in my yeah. mind it's just a hedge. Basically, it's yeah. a hedge. It's a it's a put option um, uh, purchased against cash, which basically says, well, you know, if the if the U.S. dollar mm -hmm. basically goes down, we have that, and yeah. You know, that's that's one theory I have. But again, that doesn't convince me otherwise to <laughs> It's purchase. hard, right? Like, uh, so I'm I'm a Bitcoin skeptic. At, at, literally in terms of I'm putting myself right in the middle. I'm not, I'm not a bear. I'm not a bull. I'm just a straight out skeptic. I'm straight out. I don't know. I wrote about this earlier in the week. Um, again, if you want to jump on the socials, you can find that link. Um I, I don't. I don't have. I really, I'm happy to have an. I don't know view. You know, I, like there's no. There's no penalty in as Warren Buffett would say. No called strikes, which is a baseball term. Means not much to Australians. But effectively, you can you can stand there all, all day in baseball. Um, if you if the, the the pitcher gets the ball in the strike zone, you're out. In in investing, there are no called strikes. You don't have to swing, and if you don't swing, there's no called strike. You won't you won't be out. You can wait till the pitch you get. Now that's you know that that's a Buffettism, and we can go either way with that one. But broadly, with Bitcoin, you don't have to have a view, right? That being said, mate, I. I am fascinated with the idea that that companies, investors, people are buying Bitcoin who weren't otherwise buying gold, but for similar reasons. 
And I, the, the only thing that kind of gets me on all this, and this is not about, I don't want to talk about Tesla and Musk and anyone else really. It's not, not a big deal, but just more the idea that if, if, if there are people who have that view, there are some people who are now 22 and we could never book old 10 years ago because I was 12, right? So, I, I, you know, not everybody. But if you make the argument that people are making about Bitcoin as a, as a, as a store of value, as an asset, then, you know, those people should have, a, you know, under the same rationale, other than the fact you can't physically carry it around. There's some reasons why not. But should have otherwise held gold on the same on the same basis, right? Um, and it just, it's, I just wonder whether, to, to, I wonder to what extent, right? Not, not whether, to what extent people are getting a little bit excited about this because it's kind of cool and digital and techie and stuff um, rather than actually kind of being, you know, if you said, here are my problems with, with cash, this is why I want Bitcoin, but you weren't already holding gold. I, I'm tempted to kind of question whether, you know, where, where the thought process is around the, just the, the, the coolness of it and the fact that everyone else is doing it and the fact that, you know, it seems to be going up. Is there any credence in that or am I being too, too unfair? Um, I, I think there's one hole I can think of in, in your thesis uh, comparison with, go. with gold. So one of the, I think there is, there's no such thing as a finite supply of gold. Basically, you can dig more gold <laughs> effectively right. out of the ground, right? And uh, it's a function of uh, gold production process and demand. Yeah, I think right. one of the biggest differences here is eff effectively the best way to think about, you know, um, about, Bitcoin, actually, even mm -hmm. even the stock market is demand and supply, right? And mm. here, you know that the supply is constrained because there is a cap on the supply. And right. effectively, if there is more demand for it, the price basically has to go up. There's just no way around it, right? If more people want Bitcoin, the price is going to go up. Um, mm -hmm. And whether we like it or not, that's basically the demand-supply equation uh, at work, which doesn't actually apply to gold. I mean, there might be basically... The more demand for gold results in more gold production, gold price goes up, there's more gold production, the price comes down. That cannot happen for Bitcoin, effectively. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the big difference. And uh, maybe some people are basically making the bet, well, <laughs> if there's more people interested in a finite asset, and if yeah, that yeah, asset happens yeah, to be yeah. Bitcoin, then yeah. um, basically <laughs> Bitcoin technically could be the largest valued company on the planet. So it's that... Mm -hmm. Whether you want to make that bet or not, I think there's a big difference between this and gold. Mm, uh, if mm. I had to make a store of value bet, I would absolutely make it on Bitcoin and never touch gold. Um, mm. I just don't know whether it is there, right? I mean, mm. so that's I think that's what I think is, yeah. But again, but I'm more or less with you in the sense that you know, to me, it's a little bit of speculation. But I think there's a difference between gold and Bitcoin. I think that's fair. I think it's absolutely fair. I, I, I'm not entirely sure it makes the case for either asset for what it's worth, but I, but I take your point. There is there there is something very um, finite and specific about Bitcoin that gold doesn't have. That's absolutely fair. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll withdraw my objection, uh, mate. Let's uh, let's let's move on. The um, I'm gonna have a little bit of a mini rant. It's time for my, my mini high horse. Um, it's it's one of those stories that we, I talked last week about the cashback loans, and I talked about the fact that I thought it was a bit of a you know. A questionable thing and I mean not questionable everyone's, everyone's allowed to do it it's completely ethical legal moral all that good stuff except that it's kind of one of those distraction things right don't look at the interest rate look at the cash I'm going to give you instead uh, let me let me let me bamboozle you let me dazzle you with, with the cash look over here look over here don't don't compare the rates just take the cash um, there was an ad I saw this week and I, I had to mention it mate it won't be a long one this one uh, there was and I was from one of the big banks I think it was one of the international banks I, I couldn't find the ad this morning so I'm not going to name the, the party just in case I get it wrong um, I, they may sue me but more importantly it wouldn't be fair so I'm not going to but they were asking for investments of half a million dollars 500,000 bucks and in return the investor would get a gold coin worth a thousand dollars now you, can, you don't have to do the maths I'll do it for you that's 0.2% that is that is nothing. That is that is tiny. It is it is immaterial. If you got half a million dollars, zero point two percent is immaterial. Except the ads out there, mate. You know why the ads out there? Because it works. <laughs> and if you if you want to study of human psychology, there are better. I mean, there's plenty of them, but there are there are very few better options than that one, where someone with half a million dollars, who in theory would pass the sophisticated investor test. Um, that, that, that ASIC set out for, for needing less in terms of uh, you know product disclosure all that kind of stuff half a million bucks you're going to put with a particular investment bank because they give you a thousand dollar gold coin and I just thought you know what it's not the it, yes it's the people who drive across town to save two cents on petrol and we all laugh and they go oh, if you do that that's great you spend twenty dollars on petrol saving five bucks 
This is the this is the other end of that scale, mate. Exactly the same problem, exactly the same psychological biases and traps for someone who's investing half a. In theory, they've got a few million bucks. You're not going to invest all your, your your entire life savings. Maybe you are with this one investment bank. So let's assume you've got one or two or three million bucks. They're, these are the people they're targeting, and yet this bank is hoping they'll be able to swing people with the offer of a gold coin. And as I said, they wouldn't offer it unless they actually either thought it would work or knew that it worked. And it's just a reminder that as, as rational as we all want to be, even the rich and famous fall for the same traps that we do. So that was worth uh, worth, worth highlighting, mate, because it's a bit of fun. Who doesn't love a gold coin? Like, I mean, you're basically saying you don't <laughs> yeah. want a gold coin. You know, somebody's going to melt it, smelt it, put it together, <laughs> give it to you in a nice box. It's going to look like a gift. And you're just telling people that that's not useful. <sighs> um, I mean, I'm you saying, know. I'm saying I'll take it as well as the best offer you've got rather than instead of. Ah, oh, I mean, it's still, it's the beautiful gold. It's going to look shiny. It's going to come straight from Perth Mint, you know. It's, oh, man. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. I mean, you know, like, it's, yeah, like, it's that, um, yeah. So you, you, you can it's go and buy a, gar- you can buy a garden hose and you can spend $100 for a garden hose or $10 for a garden hose. I mean, why do people spend $100? Because they like that. It's the same thing. Oh. Very, very funny. All right. Anyway, I just thought it was one of those, one of those, you know. Anyway, do knock yourselves out. But grab, grab your gold coin if you want, but don't let anyone hoodwink you to stop looking at the total return for the sake of a shiny thing. I get it. I get it. Just don't do it. Um, mate, let's, uh, let's finish off, as we always try and do, with a bit of mail from the mailbag. We got a, a question from Buzz. Buzz says, hi, Scott Knock. Please use the code name Buzz. And Scott, I am female. I know you get a kick out of the fairer sex investing. I do indeed. Buzz? Um, I, I, I'm pretty. I don't know if I, I don't know how I think I feel about people giving themselves their own code names. I, I kind of like it on one level. It's kind of cool, you know. Maybe we should have code names. If you had a code name, what would your code name be, Doc? Oh, that's good. I'll take Buzz. Buzz sounds like a really good. Name. <laughs> I think Buzz is already taken. Well, but uh, any, anyway, I'll take, I'll take Buzz two, Buzz three, Buzz new. <laughs> I like it. Even better one, I like Buzz it. Buzz zero zero seven buzz again. The Buzz again. Oh, there we go. Buzz James Buzz. James. Buzz. All right. <laughs> Anyway, here's the question. Love the podcast and I'm a member of a number of your services. Thanks, Buzz. A huge thank you for the education, insights and recommendations. I've managed to build a solid ASX-based portfolio based on your recommendations and now I would like to focus on buying your US stocks this year. The trouble is, the dollars don't go far once you consider currency conversion and the individual stock price of the recommendations. And just to break this down a little bit, um, currency, of course, you have to convert. And right now you're getting 77 cents for every Australian dollar. So there's a bit less to go around. And as Buzz says, the average American company, Doc, just because of a quirk of the way that Australian and US markets have kind of evolved, the average US share price is probably be five times the average price in Australia. Is that fair to say, mate? Is that, is that a rough, if I'm trying to think about the companies that I know? About five times, maybe ten times the average price. Just, just not that it matters because it's all about the you know size of the pie, as we always say. But the average US share prices are probably uh, yeah five ten times higher than ASX. Yeah. Typically. Anyway, Buzz says yeah fifty dollars to hundred dollars sort of is the average you'd probably be looking at. Yeah. Between, somewhere in the fifty to hundred dollars. Yeah. And it doesn't take much for a hundred dollar stock to double or triple over time. And obviously, it's a three hundred dollar stock, and that feels super expensive, right? Compared to buying Woolies at forty bucks or I don't know CBA at whatever CBA is eighty bucks. Uh, all right, here we go. I know that one of the golden rules of The Motley Fool is to have a minimum of 15 to 20 stocks in a diversified portfolio. However, sometimes the budget only allows for purchase of one or two of these US recommendations. And Buzz says, Doc, I'm thinking of Tesla here. At a time. I have opened an account with Stake, as you guys have pointed out the importance of US investing, but I get discouraged when I see how much a single US share costs. My question is this. What's the best way to start a US-based portfolio on a limited budget? Is there any point in building up to 15 different entities if you can only afford to buy one or two each of these? Many thanks in advance. Let all fool on. Thank you, Buzz. I love the code name. Thank you. And thank you for being a female listener and correspondent. I do get a kick out of it. Um, just, you know, blo- there are too many blokes in investing and not enough women. And, and the more we can redress that balance, the better for everybody. So you're dead right, Buzz. And if you have any friends, any female friends, please send them to our podcast if you wouldn't mind. All right, buddy. Um, what do you reckon? What would you suggest to Buzz? Yeah, yeah. So you could choose to buy. So you could basically decide. I think it's better to think in terms of the dollar figures that you're investing. And then as you add more capital over time, basically, you can add to those positions that you want to add to and maybe leave those positions that you don't want to add to. So it shouldn't be. I mean, it's an, in theory, it just it just seems like you have less number of shares, but that is not material, right? It's basically material as what percentage of your capital you have invested towards 
a particular company. And the only thing that really matters is whether or not that investment is good or has the potential for you know delivering market-beating returns, then whether it's in ASX or in China or in America or in India or Brazil, it really doesn't matter. Um, what what matters is whether whether or not you get the returns. Mm-hmm. And again, returns on uh, you know on a current currency considered basis. So uh, you absolutely have to consider that as well. But um, yeah, so I think you know it doesn't. It seems like you're you know she's on the right path here by you know. And if you buy one or one point five, uh, two, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's I think it's a really great point, mate. Yeah, look, I'll go the a, a bit further on the fractional, which is basically what you said, just to just to kind of give a different uh, uh, perspective on the same example, which is if you had ten twenty dollar shares or a hundred two dollar shares or one two hundred dollar share, it's kind of the same thing, and it feels like I at one point, doc. Um, I can't remember what company I, I owned. It was one of the US companies. You know, I had ten shares at one point, and it feels weird. Like it genuinely feels weird because it's like. You know, we used to buy. I've also bought in the past. Um, I bought some for my sins, and I'm losing money on it. So this is not a recommendation. I bought some RFG shares when the price fell to 14 cents. They're down about eight now, so more fool me. But um, you know, when you buy 14 cent shares, if, you, if you're putting you know, a couple of thousand dollars in, all of a sudden you got all these shares coming out of your ears, and you kind of you know, it, it's there's it, all these shares. You go, wow, there's an amazing number of shares. But but as I said, you know, a uh, hundred two dollar shares, or, or ten twenty dollar shares, or one two hundred dollar share, or point one of a two thousand dollar share. It's exactly the same thing. So, Buzz, don't get discouraged. I know it, it's it really it's a it's a, it really is weird. I, I don't know if the Americans find it as weird as we do. Maybe they're more used to it or used to higher prices. But it's weird buying one share or a fraction of a share and feeling like it's like am I even am I even trying here? Am I even you know is it even making a difference? Do I even bother? Um, but you have to try and get your head around the reality, as Doc says, by the dollar value, not the not the number of absolute shares. Because um, the company could split its shares hundred for one, and you'd have hundred times as many shares but the same interest, and it would be exactly the same thing. You'd feel it'd feel less weird but it'd be exactly the same thing. So that's really important. In terms of diversification, um, we would say you don't need 15 to 20 ASX shares and 15 to 20 US shares necessarily. So don't think about diversification, at least in my view. Doc, you may disagree, but I don't think you do. We'll find out. Um, don't, don't feel like you need to have a, you know, a 15 to 20 stock ASX portfolio and a 15 to 20 stock US portfolio. Um, in fact, we're actually trying to do the reverse to be completely exchange agnostic. Buy a diversified portfolio of stocks by absolute means, but don't feel like you need to have um, that that diversification per exchange. Think about your portfolio as a whole. So if you only buy, if you've got 15 to 20 ASX stocks, you want to add two US stocks, then great, you've got 22 stocks in your portfolio. Um, so you're actually increasing the diversification anyway, but don't feel like you have to get to 15 or 20 to make it useful. It's not the way I would think about it. Do you agree, Doc? Yeah, I think I agree with that. What I do is I basically have a single spreadsheet um, for different nice. accounts, actually. I like that. And I just keep, uh, and the only thing, I actually don't even have the cost basis. The only thing I really have there is the total number of shares I have and the current share price um, adjusted to mm. essentially Australian dollars, right? And that yeah, basically tells that. me, well, how much That's do right. I have invested in Australian dollars today? And, and you know, and, and, and even individually, I can look at the percentage allocation to each individual company and tells me, you know, whether mm. I'm overweight, underweight, whatever. Um, so that, that's, that's a pretty meaningful way of doing it. Yeah, and, you know, you can get to 20, 30 companies and get, you know, as long as they're not all like, you know, banks and miners and uh, all insurance mm-hmm. or all, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, all tech in the same tech field, um, yeah. then, yeah. you know, you can, 30 companies, 20, 25, 30 companies can easily get you decent diversification. I, I mean, most of the benefit of diversification uh, would show up, should show up if, yeah. you know, if, if they have been picked properly. Nice. Love it, mate. Now, if you're like Buzz and you should be, or more importantly, if you think Buzz is on the right track and you should... Why don't you join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities? That's Doc Service. He runs with Kevin Gandia. And you can join EO for a very special price, a very, well, inexpensive price, a wonderful value proposition joining EO. If you go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast, please do because uh, I, I think you'll find it worthwhile. Past performance, no guarantee. We can make no promises about the future either. What I can promise is Kevin and Doc are doing their absolute level best to bring you the best stocks they can find. The most recent recommendation was out just this Wednesday, gone. Um, for those who listen to our podcast, you may find a small amount of amusement. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't give too much away, Doc, because I don't want people to be able to, to, to guess it too easily. Let me just say that uh, when, you, when, you, when you join EO, or if you're already an EO member, as you listen to this podcast, look back at the last Extreme Opportunities recommendation. I think if you, if you have a, a bit of a read, 
you'll get a little bit of a giggle. Put it put it that way. And if you don't, uh, let, let, drop me a note. I'm happy to I'm happy to help you out. But I'm pretty sure you'll uh, you'll work out what we're talking about. All right, mate. In the meantime, uh, I'm just going to okay. just going to quickly add one thing. You know, there's Please. nothing to do with that amusement and the the amusement was a byproduct <laughs> of the stock recommendation. Uh, 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 you it's not know, deliberate. You're saying it, it was not. It was not deliberate. It was in no way deliberate <laughs> if for anyone who's listening to say that you know, oh, well, we got to have this recommendation because of that reason <laughs> but um, we, we thought this was a really really interesting company and just a little teaser it's a really interesting company in a very interesting area of technology I agree which is not which is not pure technology so this is technology oh. plus you know that, that's that's enough I, of a teaser uh, I, I'll, I'll give well, you, extra, you go ahead. extra bit of value. Go on. Yeah. No, no, go, go, go. Add the value. <laughs> I was going to add some value. So I was actually not, well, I, so the value was not depending on how you think about my stock picking, but uh, I, I did say to yesterday when I saw what it was, I uh, recorded this on Thursday, as I normally say. Uh, I did look at it yesterday and, and I was actually looking at that only, I think it must have been earlier this week, late last week. And I, I looked at it, I thought, gee, that's interesting. I, 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 I kind of didn't get quite far enough through to actually have a really good look from an investment perspective, a really formal final investment view. Um, but I wasn't surprised to see it in the recommend, in the service um, and certainly a, a, an interesting company. As always, higher risk than the average ASX company, but as always, with higher return potential. So uh, look, if we haven't given you enough reason to join EO, I don't know what more we can do. Um, that was all unscripted, by the way. It was just, just a bit of fun. Uh, but yeah, do go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Get a special deal for our podcast listeners. Join EO for the joke, if nothing, for the, for the, for the enjoyment. Because you love us, because you love Doc. All right. Uh, speaking of which, though, if you do want to get in touch with us on the socials, as I mentioned, let me quickly run through them. If you're listening every single week, you probably know this off by heart. If you do, that's great. So, hey, hit us up. If you don't and you don't know off by heart, here we go. You can hit us up on email, info at fool.com.au. Nice and easy, I-N-F-O. And our member services team will make sure your email makes its way to us. If you're on Twitter, that's the only place you can catch Docs exclusively on Twitter. Uh, so you can get him at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P and you get The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. Follow those accounts for us. Um, feel free to leave us a note, direct message or tag us in your tweets. You can also uh, get myself and The Fool account on Instagram at TMF Scott P again and at The Motley Fool AU. Same on both Twitter and Instagram. And on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia and Scott Phillips money. That's how you can get hold of us. In the meantime, please make sure you do subscribe to the podcast because we love our followers. We don't want you to miss anything. And also, the reality simply is the higher we are up the charts, the more we're likely to be noticed and the more people hopefully will enjoy what you're enjoying. So please do subscribe. Please tell your friends. Leave us a review and a rating if you don't mind. As I always say, feel free to skyride it, but please don't tattoo it on yourself. Don't make us responsible for your mistakes. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness and a little bit of marketing from us. Straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Surprise, we'll be back on Sunday with a special mailbag edition and some more foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.